Lord, we bless your name. We exalt you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the price that you paid for us. The price of redemption paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless your holy name. Amen, amen, amen. Well, let's make our confession. This is our year of Jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost in power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We want to continue in the series, Steps to Answered Prayer, that we've been uh, t teaching on for the last couple of weeks. We want to start in John chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Jesus is telling us that the answer to our prayers depends more on us than it does God. If you abide in me, he said, talking about relationship and fellowship with God, and if my words abide in you, The strength of the word is the, the answer to prayer. Now, we talked about the first step last week, and that is decide what you want from God and find scriptures that promise you those things. Then, the, then it, we need to go further, and that is to get those scriptures down in our hearts and be ready to use them against the devil when he tries to talk us out of what belongs to us. You know, one thing that I've learned over the, the 36 years, or 37 years, whatever it is, however old we are, one of the things that has impressed me in talking to people and, and praying for people and over that period of time that we've been here pastoring the church is that not many people really prepare themselves to fight the good fight of faith. By that, I mean people expect resistance that's not an uncommon thing. But very few people really go into prayer prepared for the battle. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Now he can't be talking about eternal life in the sense of salvation. He's not telling Timothy, get saved. But he's talking about the fight that the devil will rage, wage against us when we step out on God's word to take hold of something that belongs to us. It shouldn't surprise us because the Bible identifies it in very many ways Let's look at a couple of those in Mark chapter 4. Jesus tells the disciples the parable of the sower sowing the word. And then in private, they come to him later asking him what this means. Verse 13, Mark 4, 13. And he said unto them, know, not, know you not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? He's saying this is a principle the parable identifies the principle that we need to know and understand in order to know the other parables that he speaks and gives to us. 
Verse 14, the sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word was sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness, but have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Now Jesus doesn't identify these principles as the fight. But you can clearly see that the devil will wage war against you trying to turn you away from the word that you base your prayers on. He talks about five th specific things. Affliction, persecution, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts or desires for other things. Those are the weapons or the tools that the devil will use to try to shake us from the foundation of the word of God that we based our prayer on. Now he doesn't identify it as a fight, but you can clearly see the conflict that's, that comes against us when we hear the word of God and take hold of it. He wants to shake you from the word. He doesn't care that much about you and me but he does care about the word of God that we profess our faith in. And if he can shake us from the word, if he can get us looking at and careful about the circumstances of life, then he can rob us of what Jesus paid for with his own precious blood. Now, there are other places where the Bible talks about the fight of faith, but it doesn't use the same terms. James chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now he's talking about the principle of faith whereby we take hold of any, any and all of the blessings of God. Book of James is the first book that was recorded, chronologically that is, after Jesus' crucifixion. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And the first thing, almost the first verse that he writes to the church is what to do in a time of conflict, what to do when you're in the middle of a faith fight. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. It's interesting to me that the first thing the Holy Ghost impresses upon the New Testament church is related to the fight of faith. Again, the word fight's not here. It's not described as Paul said it to Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. But you can see the conflict. You can see the understanding that James has when he writes this letter to the church and, is, and it's applied as far as this letter is, is transported to all the members of the church and the body of Christ 
in this first generation of the church. He knows that the devil is going to resist us and does resist us in almost anything and everything that we do. Paul said the same thing or similar thing in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Paul uses the illustration of the armor of God, which you know as well as I do, that the reason that he talks about being clothed in the armor of God is because of the fight that's set before us. When Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, there's been a great persecution that's taken place against the, the Christians' world, the church world. And he's instructing them and us on what to do and how to handle the fight of the devil, the fight that the devil brings to our door. Now let me ask you something, folks. What things have you prayed for to receive from God that hasn't involved a fight? There's a couple of things that have come instantly to us and the devil doesn't have the ability to stop us from receiving. The first is salvation, and by salvation I mean the forgiveness of sin. Once you exercise your right to come into the family of God, there's nothing the devil can do to stop it. The same thing's true with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When you come to the knowledge of the Holy Ghost being poured out upon us and exercise your will to receive it, there's nothing the devil can do to stop you from having that. When it comes to receiving things, receiving the knowledge of things, knowledge of the word, the devil cannot stop us when we exercise our faith and exercise our will to take hold of that that we gain information from the word of God belongs to us. But even in things pertaining to the word, even in things pertaining to God's, our relationship with God and furthering that relationship through fellowship in his word, there are still some examples that the Bible gives us that shows the work of the devil and the operation of the devil against us. In Daniel chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was in mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekel. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body was also like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, 
and the multitude of his words were like the multitude, the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when the, I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hand. And he said unto me, O Daniel, O man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when I had spoken, and when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before the Lord, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make you understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips, and then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remaineth no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then one came again and touched me like one, one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me, and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened, and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest now wherefore I come unto thee? And now I will return to fight with the king of Persia, and when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. Daniel sees from Jeremiah's prophecy that the time is coming for the children of Israel to be restored back to their own land and to be released from captivity from Babylon. And Daniel sees this angel, the spirit being, and the Bible tells us that he's, his appearance is something that sets him apart. One of the things that it says about him is that he has the, the gold of Uphaz, now, Uphaz was a place. It would be like saying, and this angel was adorned with gold from K Jewelers. He's making a comparison. He's certainly not saying that angels wear earthly gold. And he talks about his appearance. He's arrayed with beauty like something Daniel's never seen before. But this angel is hindered. It says that he came from the first day that Daniel set his face to seek the answers from God that he needed about Israel's deliverance. But this angel is not strong enough to get through the work of the devil. Now we know the Bible tells us a lot about the unseen realm being in conflict with the forces of heaven. We know that there's an unseen realm and that brought about and created this seen realm, this physical realm that we know. Now, Daniel's experience with this angel is that as soon as the angel arrives, 
It robs Daniel of strength. His physical strength leaves him. And this angel sets him up on his hands and his knees. Brother Hagin used to make a joke because people would question why folks, when they were prayed for, why they would fall under the power of the Spirit. And he used to say, people get upset about falling into power. Wait till God starts setting them back up. And this angel, as beautiful as he was, as adorned with splendor, as, he, as Daniel is able to describe, had to have help from another of the angels, Michael, who, the, who Daniel says is his angel. Michael is Daniel's angel. Now, folks, the, the Bible tells us that the angels keep the little children. But somehow or another, people just come to the place, the wrong understanding, that when you grow up, you lose your angel somewhere. But we see from the Scripture that that's not correct. Here's a question for you. Why would God send an angel that couldn't get through? I think the answer lies in the fact that it names Michael as Daniel's angel. Because once Michael comes on the scene, this other angel is able to make it through. He's hindered to begin with by the spiritual force, the demon, demonic force that rules over Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, and it foretells another kingdom, the Greek kingdom, that will take the place of the Persian kingdom that will bring about the destruction of Cyrus's kingdom. And we know from historical fact that that's exactly what, the way it worked. Now, when it talks about these angels bringing the understanding that Daniel is seeking, and from this, he comes to understand that Israel will be in captivity to Persia for 70 years and that 70 years is just about up at the time that Daniel receives this vision the power that is identified in these two angels just two of them that working together, they overcome the force, the spiritual force, the demonic force, and demonic power that's ruling over these natural governments. And folks, think about that for a minute. One man, Daniel, with two angels, is able to overcome the power of the world's superpower at the time, which is the Persian kingdom. And the fact that it foretells the Greek kingdom that's coming next, one man with two angels would still be able to overcome that kingdom too. Now the Bible says that God gives us authority over the angels. In Hebrews, I believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. But whoever it was, the Holy Spirit impressed upon them 
to identify that man was created with greater authority than the angels. I think we sometimes take the position that it would take a lot of people and a lot of angels to overcome world government systems, but that's not the case. Man was created to have authority and dominion over this world. And the Bible says that we will judge the angels. Well, when the time comes for that to take place, if man doesn't have authority or dominion over them, how could we be in a position to judge angels? You may also remember Elijah. I'm sorry, it's Elisha that was with his servant when the enemies of Israel came out against him. And he points it out to Elisha how the, the great army of the world superpower at that time had come out to capture Elisha and his servant because he was defending Israel by telling them the enemy king's plans. But you remember what he said to his servant? He said, they that are with us are more than they that are with them. And his servant doesn't understand what he's talking about. And so Elisha prays for his servant's eyes to be open. And they were. And he saw that the hills were, were covered with angel armies. A multitude of angel armies to protect one prophet and his servant. I wish we could get a glimpse, just a glimpse of the authority that we have and to come to understand the power that rests in us because we are in him. The power that's in the name of Jesus. And that's one of the things that Paul prayed for. He prayed that God would give unto the church the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of our understanding being enlightened that we may know what is the hope of his calling. What we're called to do in other words. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What belongs to us in other words. And that we would know, the third thing he prays for is that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. Folks, if the church ever got a glimpse of the power that's available to us through the name of Jesus, I'm not sure this world could hold us. We are in a constant battle. But when, when we're abiding in him, the victory is ours. So back to our original position, steps to answered prayer. Step one is decide what you want from God and find scriptures that promise you those things and get those scriptures down in your heart, not just in your mind, but get those scriptures down in your heart. And be ready to use them against the devil when he comes. That brings us to step two. And for this, we want to go to Mark chapter 11. Verse 22, Jesus answering, said unto them, have faith in God. Other translations say, have the faith of God, which I believe is better translation, really. Because so many times when people talk about having faith in God, they're looking for God to do something. They're waiting for God to take action when the action is left to us. 
to have the faith of God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Step two is ask God for the things you want and believe that you receive them when you pray. As we said before, the Bible tells us very specifically that the unseen realm governs the physical realm. The unseen realm is the source or the origin of the creation of the physical realm. So we know there's a seen realm and an unseen realm. We know there's a spirit realm and a physical realm. But folks, we need to also recognize that there is a realm of spiritual truth and there is a realm of physical reality. Now, these two don't balance themselves out like a scale, but rather they operate on parallel lines, but there's a gap in between them. That gap in between the physical realm and the spiritual realm can only be accessed by spiritual forces. It's as if there is a curtain that surrounds the physical realm and we're inside that curtain. But there's a rope that goes underneath the curtain that's available for us to grab hold of and that rope determines what we can receive from the unseen realm. There's only one way that we can know what that unseen realm contains. There's only one thing that shows us or reveals to us what's on the other side of the curtain and that's the word of God now when we see the things that Jesus paid for the blessings of God that he made available to us and when we understand that those things are on the other end of the rope then we can by faith operate in such a way to bring the things of the spirit realm, the unseen things of the spirit realm, into physical reality. Now, what is it that takes hold of the rope to manifest the blessings of God from the spiritual truth into the physical reality? That force is called faith. Remember, remember Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen is the very act of taking hold of the rope and bringing those things from the other side of the, of the veil or the curtains and making it a reality in your life. Now Mark chapter 11 gives us fundamental truth of what faith is and how faith works. How do we hold the rope? Or how do we take hold of the rope to pull the blessings of God into physical reality? Jesus gave us two operations of the, of the force of faith 
here in Mark chapter 11. One was in verse 23, speaking to the mountain. And the other is in verse 24, praying in faith. Now, praying in faith means you're praying according to the word of God. Faith begins for the will of God is known. And so Jesus, describing the prayer of faith in verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Notice verse 24 starts with the word therefore. What's it there for? He's identifying that faith works by believing in the heart and speaking with the mouth. Therefore, the foundational truth of operating by faith means that we have to take hold of the rope through the words that we speak. Paul identified Jesus as the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The high priest is one that operates on behalf of another and stands in the gap as a sign of relationship or connection with God the Father, the creator of the universe. Hebrews 10, 20, 10.25 says, Hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering. So as long as we are speaking God's word, in this case, talking about answered prayer, as long as we're speaking the word of God that we've established our prayer on, and identified the blessings of God belong to us, as long as we're speaking that truth, we're laying hold on the, taking hold of the rope. And the things that we read over in Mark chapter 4 that the devil uses, affliction, persecution, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches and lusts of other things, those are the circumstances that the devil will try to use against us for the one and only purpose, the sole purpose of trying to get, get us to turn loose of our hold on the rope. So when the Bible speaks of praying in faith, what things soever you desire when you believe, when you pray, believe that you receive them then the way to believe that you receive them is to make the confession, I believe I receive them. Whatever it is you're praying for, whether it's finances, whether it's physical healing, whether it's the peace of God, whatever it is, we must use our confession to come in line with the word of God which is simply to say, I believe I received my healing in Jesus' name. I believe I received finances in Jesus' name. Now, Jesus identifies that the promises of God exist in two different forms. Spiritual truth and physical reality. Now, when we first start off believing God or praying in faith, we have only one of those two forms of the blessing of God. We find in the scripture that the spiritual truth is that healing belongs to us. The spiritual truth is that prosperity belongs to us. 
The spiritual truth is that peace belongs to us. That may not be the case in physical reality. But as we maintain our confession of faith, as we maintain our declaration, I believe I receive healing, finances, whatever it is we're praying for. As we maintain our confession, I believe I receive. The Bible says that God will make sure that we have it. Now having whatever we desire, again, physical, uh, physical healing, finances, whatever it might be, having refers to the physical reality of those things. We start off believing we receive them simply because God's word says they belong to us. But eventually, sooner or later, we all hope for sooner, but eventually, that confession, I believe I receive, will become the physical reality. So the blessings of God exist in two forms. First, spiritual truth. Second, physical reality. Now when we have it, which means our healing or our financial needs or whatever else we're praying for, when that becomes a physical reality, there's no longer need for faith. Faith has accomplished its work. Now the timing is what's critical. Whosoever, I'm sorry, therefore I say unto you, verse 24 of Matthew chapter 11, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. When you pray is when you start believing that you receive. A lot of people want to start waiting or start believing after they have it. Or in other words, when they can see it. But the order is very specific. What things soever you desire, believe that you receive them, maintain your confession, I believe I receive. And it will become a reality, a physical reality. You will have it. The Bible tells us that the things that we can't see, the spirit realm in other words, is more true than the things that we can see. Paul identifies this physical reality, this physical realm as temporal. The word temporal means subject to change. The Bible tells us that we can change everything about this world we live in simply by taking hold of God's word, the realization of what belongs to us. Now there's an important scripture that I'd like to point out to you. Matthew chapter 11, I'm going to start with verse 1, it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, talking about John the Baptist, had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? John the Baptist 
had Jesus come to him at a certain time, a certain place by the Jordan River. And John had already identified him as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Now you may remember the circumstances that got John put in prison. He condemned Herod, the king of Judea, for taking his brother's wife and making her his own. Well, he made an enemy out of her, that's for sure. And the Bible tells us that there was a certain feast where Herod's new wife and daughter came up with an idea. And that idea was for the daughter to dance before King Herod. And the implication is that it was a, a very lewd or lascivious type of dance and it pleased him so much that he told her whatever she asked for he'd give to her up to half the kingdom well she went and conferred with her mother and her mother wanted to do away with John the Baptist so she went back to Herod and asked for the head of John the Baptist to be brought to her. Herod regretted the promise he had made, but he carried it out and killed John the Baptist. So this is some short time before John is executed. And again, he sent two servants to Jesus to ask, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whomsoever, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, and I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. He identifies that John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets. And the only reason or the only way that could be accurate is that the message that John the Baptist had was greater than anything that the prophets had spoken in, in, the, in previous generations. The fact that John the Baptist was the messenger to declare that Jesus was come, the Messiah was come, gave him a place of greater stature than any of the Old Testament prophets, including Moses, who talked face to face with God. But verse 12 is the one that I want you to get to. Jesus is identifying John's place in God's timeline as being the messenger of the Messiah. But notice that Jesus said 
that something changed with John the Baptist. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. What violence or what force is he talking about? Well, he can't be talking about a physical force. Because remember, there were different times in Jesus' ministry where people would come to him and ask if he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel out from under Roman rule to live independent and free. Every time they asked him that, Jesus would identify that he didn't come to get involved in physical things like politics, not to say it's wrong to be involved in politics, but Jesus just answered that he was not come to deliver Israel from the bondage of Roman rule. But what was he sent for? If it wasn't to restore the kingdom of Israel to independent rule over themselves, what did he come for? The Bible says he came to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible tells us he came to redeem man from sin and the dominion of sin. So when he talks about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence, what's he talking about? Folks, he's talking about a spiritual force called faith. He taught people the character and the nature of God. He taught people that God heals and wants to heal all. That's not to say that everybody that was sick in Jesus' time on the earth was healed. There were times where Jesus walked away from crowd of healing of sick people. But that doesn't mean that Jesus that God didn't want everybody to be healed. There was not one certain one specific person anywhere that came to him for healing that he turned away and so where it says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence it's talking about faith taking on a different place a different operation of faith than ever before remember the kingdom of heaven means God's will for how things are in heaven or in the spirit realm which we always know all of us know that there's nothing in heaven to hurt or harm anybody there's no sickness or disease there's no poverty or no lack the kingdom of heaven operates exactly the way that God intended for it to operate and the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of earth was created by God to operate in the same form. And except for the devil's deception against Adam and Eve, this earthly realm would be free from any sin, any results of sin, any sickness, any lack any poverty, anything that could hurt mankind in any way whatsoever. But because man did fall, he needed a redeemer. Of course, we know that redeemer is Jesus. And that force of violence or violent force that Jesus is speaking of is the single force that brings us into God's kingdom or brings us into God's family. The kingdom of heaven is supposed to suffer violence. It's supposed to be taken hold of by this violent spiritual force that refuses to be denied, that rests entirely upon God's will 
to redeem mankind. The devil knows that faith is a violent force. That's why he wants to separate you from his faith, separate you from your faith in God's word. But whether or not he's able to do that depends on you, not God. So Jesus, again, describing this violent force of faith, said, have the faith of God. The faith of God is to believe or expect and to speak according to your will. So he said, have the faith of God, believe with the heart and speak, say with the mouth, for whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Or in other words, not let affliction, persecution, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, or lust of other things entering in. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. He shall have whatsoever he saith. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Here's the conflict between spiritual truth and physical reality again. And notice it's your words that bridge the gap. This thing called faith, this spiritual force called faith. And remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it's your words speaking God's truth that enables you to go from the unseen reality or the unseen truth to the physical reality of God's blessing. It goes on to say in verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. Believe that you receive them, those unseen spiritual truths, and you shall have them in physical reality. Can you see why Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you of my Father which is in heaven. Herein is my Father glorified. God's glorified when you and I get answers to our prayers. It's not poverty or sickness that glorifies God. It's healing and prosperity. Because those are things that Jesus paid for with his precious blood. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth revealed in your word. We thank you, Father, that we can have the same confidence that John spoke of When he said, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. And since we know that you hear us, we know that we have the petitions that we've desired of you. Thank you, Father, for your word that reveals to your, your will to us. Thank you, Father, for the strength of your word upon which we rely. Thank you, Father, that you hear and answer our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's make our confession one more time before we go. This is our year of jubilee. 
we believe that we expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, folks.